Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organizations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast. And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to at JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 88 of the Intercooler Podcast. I'm Dan Prosser with Andrew Frankel. Um, Andrew, now for this episode of the podcast, we're talking poster cars, the ones that we had on our walls as kids. Um, yes. It's a good topic because, particularly for you, I suspect, you've been lucky enough to go and drive some of your poster cars. Is that true? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, quite a lot of them, I, w- I would imagine. Um, but no, it'll be interesting to, 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 to see what we both come up with. Um, yes, it's, it's great, isn't it? We can sort of regress to our childhoods. <laughs> and, um, I'm not sure we ever left, did we? Well, that's the point, isn't it? Um, you know, as motoring journalists, we, 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 we never grow up. It's, 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 it's pretty much the, the biggest joy of the job, isn't it? We continue to indulge our childhood fantasies on a daily basis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I, I, I think really the interesting thing about this podcast is because there is, what, 20 years between us, pretty much, um, in terms of our age. Um, I just, I, I'm actually, re- I'm much more interested in what you've got to say uh, about yours because I mean, I just don't know. So you'll, you, so you'll be talking about cars from the, I guess, the sort of mid late nineties, that sort of thing. Well, that, but also, um, I've expanded it out a little bit away from just poster Ooh. cars 
And Get you. for instance, I'm going to talk a little, about, a little bit about computer games. Just because it occurred to me that... We didn't have these... computers back in my day. <laughs> it occurred to me that these things sort of evolve a little bit, don't they? And yeah. we, we sort of, as kids, enjoy cars in slightly different ways through different generations, oh, I suppose. fantastic, fantastic, excellent. But you see, we didn't really have posters. You see, I'm trying to remember if I actually had big posters. I mean, they were like sort of center spreads that you could pull out of magazines yeah. and stick those on your wall. Um, but I don't think, I mean, you know, back then, if you had a poster in the wall, it would be, you know, Farrah Fawcett Majors or Girl Playing Tennis or whatever. I don't think you got, maybe you did get, I mean, or maybe I just couldn't afford them. So really, actually, my walls were just things I'd cut out of magazines with scissors. Mm. Well, that's interesting. Um, Mine were as well, actually. So, so actually, you just got, well, because what you do is, you, you know, a car magazine would come in, and once you'd read it from cover to cover eight times, and it was just sitting there, and you couldn't really quite bear to throw it away. So you just go and you know, cut around, you really, really terrible cuts around all these things, and you get, I don't think we think, I don't even think we had blue tack back then. I don't know what we did. I guess it was <laughs> tape. Um, and you just stuck them on your wall, and they lived there, you know, in perpetuity for all time. It's great. Um, yeah, so presumably the Athena poster thing, was that, did that come in, in the 80s? Was that when it... Yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Um, if it did, it kind of passed me by um, because, um, you know, I, 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 I was in pocket money terms. I was made to live on quite a tight budget. So, um, you know, if there was money out there for to be going buying the, these sorts of things, it's, I, I certainly didn't have any of it. So uh, I don't think so. I suspect it probably was an 80s thing. I was just always pulling pictures out of magazines. Well, listen, we'll come back to this because we're recording this on the Monday after the Saudi Arabia Grand Prix. Um, <laughs> and we just have to discuss it, don't we? I mean, we, we, do. we, we, we decided do. to save this podcast recording until today, just in case we had a new world champion. It could only and have I'm been so Max. glad we did. Oh, well, no, well, we don't have a new world champion, but um, yes, but I'm glad we decided to uh, not record this on Friday. So we're not going to sort of dissect the race lap by lap. I know not all of you will have seen it, um, but th- there are sort of some important themes and topics that we could sink our teeth into, and we will. The first one, before we get into the racing, um, is I just don't think we will ever see a clean Grand Prix at this Jeddah circuit as it is. I think it makes for a dramatic weekend with lots of flashpoints, but I'm just not sure it'll ever be one that shows F1 off at its best. The problem is, is you've got a... They've built a track. The pole lap speed was 158 miles an hour average. Okay? Only Monza is faster. Yeah, unbelievable. But they built a circuit. You know, build, building a circuit that fast is great and it's cool. Um, but you, the problem is, you're never going to have a small accident there. And also, when something hits something, it's always going to be so close to the track that whatever falls off the car is going to fall onto the track. So even if you do manage to have a small accident, and you know, let's say you break a bit of your front wing, um, there's going to be carbon fibre all over. So the moment anybody hits anything at any speed you're going to have a safety car. That's the problem. Um, because there is literally nowhere to go all the way around the track. And I, I think they've done an amazing job. I mean, I don't know if you saw um, Mick Schumacher's off, where he went sideways in turn 21 into the barriers. And there was, there was an overhead shot where you could, you could literally see the way the barriers are working. They did an astonishing job. Because that looked like the potential to, have to be a horrendous accident. You know, particularly those sort of sideways ones. Um, so, you know, that, all that part of it was, was amazing. But, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's just going to be safety car to safety car to safety car, isn't it? And, and also, 
I don't see how you stop that because the the topography and the geography are what they are. Um, and you can't suddenly build huge runoff areas because, well, it's a street circuit. You, you, there, there's nowhere to build them. That, yeah, that's true. And that T1, T2 complex that Tiffany Dale was tweeting about all week beforehand, he was saying, this is going to be carnage. Just look at how the cars are going to be bunched up through this very, very tight sequence right at the start of the lap. And he was absolutely right. How many coming togethers did we see it in those couple yeah. of corners? Um, that just seems like slightly clumsy circuit design to me. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, oh, so, but, but, okay. Yeah, yeah, so, but last thing on this. Um, I, I, I completely agree with that. But it's one of those rare things, actually, isn't it? A circuit which works better in quality than it does in the race. Oh, my God. Um, what a spectacle I that mean, was. In quality. I mean, it was, I, you know, I've, I have not seen a more exciting qualifying session. You know, um, you know, it's pretty amazing. And, and the thing is, is that what it's done, and I'm sort of, forgive me for expressing it this way, but literally this thought's only just come to me, is we often lament, don't we, that it's the great circuit, you know, let's take Spa, yeah? And you think of the great circuits, the great corners at Spa. You think of, um, you think of Eau Rouge, you think of Blanchemont. Actually, even Pouan now in qualifying, they're flat. So they're not corners, they're acceleration zones. And what Saudi have done is they have, brought back the really, really high-speed, high-jeopardy corner. You know, corners where you've got apex speeds of, you know, 160, 170 miles an hour, but they're not flat. Um, and in quality, that is absolutely electrifying to watch. And and what that actually means is what it has also brought back is you can, you can see, I think, more clearly the outrageous skill of the drivers there in those conditions than you do anywhere else on the circuit. So I would be loath to say, well, you can't do that again because it's silly. But at the same time, you know, a circuit which is better to watch in quality than the race is a circuit with a problem. It's hmm. a very good point. Monaco is similar, isn't it? Um, but yeah. Yeah, but, but, at half, but, at half the, but at half the speed. Half the speed. Half the speed. Yeah. That's the thing about um, this circuit. It's unique in that way, isn't it? Uh, what did you... So Max's last lap in qualifying was looking electric, wasn't it? on the edge um but uh, as we know he locked up into the last corner and whacked the wall on the way out and that was the end of that but do you know what it's frustrating because he must have known that he was well up he was four or five tenths up going into that last corner um and it's it just seems odd that he doesn't just go okay that's enough i yeah i mean you've got to climb into that i mean i think he he might have thought he was going to do you know formula one drivers um you know they're always searching for the perfect lap aren't they and you know you'll hear you'll hear i remember sterling telling me that he never did a perfect lap in all his career he never never did a lap where he'd look back and he'd think actually that's as good as a me or b anyone could have done that lap and so you're always searching for that and maybe max thought this could be it and this could be my opportunity to not and to psychologically not just you know beat Lewis but to humiliate him you know because if he got around that last corner and he stuck it on pole by half a second I mean Lewis would have just been going oh, I mean you know it would have been a major major blow so I kind of I understand the psychology of it um but actually um somebody was somebody said on Twitter a mate of ours I can't remember who it was that the problem was is that Max doesn't think like a world champ isn't thinking like a world champion at the moment and he's not if that been Lewis Lewis would have thought fine I'll take pole. I'll be two tenths ahead. That's absolutely great. And he'd have got around that last corner because he's thinking like a world champion. And I think that's the last, um, in terms of just 
driving nous um uh, yeah the ethics we'll talk about in a minute but in terms of driving nous i think that's the last piece of max's puzzle he's got to start thinking more strategically we have seen it this year there was one race can't remember what it was where he actually brilliantly kept lewis at bay uh, just managed the gap, kept him at like sort of two, three seconds, never let him get within DR while looking after his tyres, which meant, meant that at the race, uh, at the end of the race, he had um, he had some tyres left of which which with which to repel Lewis's mm-hmm. attack. Austin, um, yeah, it was Austin. There you go. Um, but yeah, I mean, just in that last moment, that was the young hothead, wasn't he? And we mustn't forget that Max, he's like sort of three or four months older than George Russell. He's still very young. He's just 24. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not seeking to excuse anything by saying this. I'm just seeking simply to explain it. Um, and because he's been part of the furniture for such a long time, this must be his seventh or eighth season, um, we just kind of think, you know, he must by now be as good as he's ever going to be. And I don't think he is. I think he has still got stuff to learn. So, yeah, but that qualifying lap was... I actually got in a bit of stick on Twitter because I said, you know, up until the last lap, that was, you know, pretty much the most electrifying quality lap I've ever seen. It. And people were going, you know, and there was always, you know, to finish first, first, you must finish and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so I got, I got a fair bit of stick, which is, which I think is all sort of kind of fair enough. But up until that last corner, I was just watching the screen and just thinking, I've never seen anything like this. It was, it was veal nerve like in terms of that, the abandon and the talent and the courage and the commitment were just something else um and you know whether you're a max fan or not um you know you have to accept that that was an extraordinary piece of driving and i i felt sorry for him um you know of course he shouldn't he should have break five yards earlier and this that and the other but it's so easy isn't it for us to sit there with our you know with our handheld devices tweeting about this stuff with the brilliance of benefit of hindsight having never even sat in a formula one car like that let alone being out there at 200 miles an hour with a wall five inches away um you know talk about easier said than done but anyway oh it was a hell of a spectacle on saturday um and that it was yeah i mean it was the circuit that gave us that spectacle uh okay well let's talk about the race um a scrappy old race so many interruptions uh we could spend hours and hours discussing this whole thing we're not going to um i mean it where do we even begin it was frustrating that this regulation that that permits drivers to change tires during a red flag interruption yes nuts that's 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 insane i know lewis benefited from it earlier in the year um i'm just i just think it's a stupid regulation um yeah and then so the first safety car restart the first one we we saw max barge his way around off the circuit that's we've seen so so much of that this season he's he seems so desperate to get the move done that he'll send his car into a corner even at a speed that he knows he will not make yeah make the gravel there put gravel there and he'll stop doing it yeah there needs to be more of a consequence doesn't there and, and his excuse, you know, and if, if you hear what he said afterwards, he sort of said, well, you know, we both went off the circuit, but I was the only one who got pinged. Conveniently forgetting the fact that the reason Lewis went off the circuit was to avoid being taken out by Max going off the circuit. So, yeah, just but I think I think a place like that. Put, I mean, I know there's a problem with cars dragging gravel back onto the track and track and everything else. But um, I promise you, if there had been gravel there, Max wouldn't have done that. And then we, yeah, so there was a big pile up immediately after that incident. And so we got another red flag and another, um, another restart on the grid. Um, and that's where we saw, we had that weird moment, that weird episode, didn't we? Where 
Michael Massey and Red Bull were negotiating um, yeah. their starting positions. Apparently, that's a perfectly normal thing to happen, but I'm not sure we've ever heard that before. Um, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting insight, isn't it, into the sort of you know puppetry that goes on back scene and you know and the, you know, the negotiations with the puppet master. I thought it was all fairly unedifying. You know, you can't. You know, it's you can't. It's like. It's like footballers, you know, crowding around a, a referee and trying to, you know, it's it, it just it just shouldn't be part of the sport. You know, the people who decide should decide, and then that's it. Yeah. To me. They should be headmasters, shouldn't they? You should fear yeah. them. They should have total authority. Um, but, but anyway, so well, then we had the second, uh, the second restart... And that's where we saw the best of Max. And he he started third, lunged up the inside of T1, and he was through T2 and in what the lead. Move. Brilliant yeah. move. Um, yeah. I just, why don't we see more of that stuff from him and less of the never-say-die, totally unyielding, uncompromising stuff that causes so much trouble? Um, I mean, ultimately, I think... Sorry, I, I was going to say, I think the answer to that is... You know, Max is always saying, you know, he's completely chilled about whether he's world champion or not, um, and he just wants to be out there and racing and everything. I think it matters desperately to him. I think he is absolutely... It's the opposite of what he says. I think there is nothing in the world that matters more to him than this title. Um, And I think the closer we get to it... Uh, the more pressure he feels, um, the more uh, likely he is to to do that sort of thing. Uh, and I think it is a consequence of, I'm afraid, frankly, probably the character of the man, um, you know, his youth um, and just his his dri- his ambition, his drive, his mm. determination. Um, and I think it ultimately just overwhelms everything. Yeah, agreed. So, uh, yeah, they got away from the safety car restart, and then we just saw Max lead Lewis, and they both just scampered off, didn't they? They just dropped the field. It was remarkable to see. Ultimately, I think Red Bull got the tyre strategy wrong. There was no way Max was going to make those tyres last till the end of the race. He was on soft or medium compound. Lewis was on hard. Lewis was able to pretty much follow him, but Max's tyres were always going to burn out. So he would have been a sitting duck at the end of the race, no matter what happened. Um, Lewis had the quicker car. There's no Lewis, question at all that. Yeah, he had the quicker car, which is perhaps ominous for next week, this coming weekend. Um, but yeah, he was able to hold on to him, wasn't he? And and then it just all got bizarre. Max had been told to give a place back, and uh, <laughs> but he did so in a very, very cunning, almost conniving way, or he had tried to do so anyway. Um, and slowing down on what was basically a straight on a a live circuit um and in the middle of the track and then ultimately as we know now jamming his brakes on 69 bar pressure a significant amount 2.4 g of braking which is around twice what you'd ever experience in a very high performance road car so that's that's a significant braking input while he knew he had a his closest rival immediately behind him. Is that a brake test? I don't know. There's no actual definition of that. Uh, but it kind of looks that way. Okay, so let's look at it. Let's just devil's advocate here because this isn't what I think. Um, but so you're Max, okay? And you know you've got to give the place back. 
you presume Lewis knows that too. Yeah. So you slow down and Lewis is behind you and he's slowing down too. And you, Max, because you are, you're a cunning bloke, um, as is Lewis, um, you're thinking, well, of course, you know, I'm going to give the pace back at the most, at the optimum position for me. And that's within the rules. Okay. Anybody would do that. And he's slowing and he's slowing and he's slowing. Lewis is slowing too. Um, and he's not over to. So Max just thinks, okay, I'll make him overtake me. You know, I'll just slow down really quite a lot now. Um, because that'll make Lewis do what Lewis is meant to be doing anyway. Um, and, you know, Max wouldn't have known that Lewis hadn't got that message. Um, and so Max could say, well, you know, he had to overtake me. I was giving the place black. What were we going to do? Both park? Um, yeah, so, so so that's the case for the defence. Um, the case for the prosecution um, is that, you know, 2.4G, I mean... I don't know how many people listening to this have been in racing cars um, and put on brakes and experienced 2.4G. It's quite like a car crash. It's a sort, it's a form of deceleration you would never ever experience in anything which wasn't on decent slicks and probably with wings. Uh, it is an absolutely enormous through the windscreen type deceleration, and to do that with your championship rival, that close behind you, in my view, is unacceptable. I think what's even more unacceptable is the penalties that he got, which weren't penalties at all. It's absolutely meaningless. 10 seconds added to your race time. Well, who cares? Doesn't matter. Didn't affect the results. So that literally isn't a penalty. Um, it's a totally meaningless gesture-type punishment. Um, and I, I completely get that there is, you know... an absolutely rampant desire to not mess with a championship and the idea of the two of them going to the last race at honours even even playing field equal points get that completely but even so I don't know what they should have done and it's you know it's easy to criticise without having a better idea but you know maybe fining him fine him a million euros fine him a a meaningful amount of money which is actually going to hurt and make him think about it or or do something Um, but to the problem is is that you know if you say, as the race organisers, you can brake test your championship rival at 2.4G, I mean, 69 bar, that's the kind of pedal pressure you would use in a GT3 car at the end of a very long straight when you're doing a very, very high speed and you've got an awful lot of aero and you're on decent slicks. And you know, that is pretty much, for most people, that's hitting a brake pedal as hard as you can hit it. Literally as hard as you can hit it. Um, and yeah i mean it's, it was it was just it was just plain wrong the, the 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 act was wrong and the punishment was wrong um and yeah and i and, and i say this i genuinely say this as much more i think i'm much more of a max fan than most people are because i love his i i, I love his determination and, and his skill um and he's young i'm prepared to cut him a lot of slack for that but that to me was unacceptable driving um and unacceptable driving which is you know probably dangerous because there could have been if lewis doesn't have didn't have lewis level reactions there could have been a you know a significant accident there um and if you're going to behave like that it shouldn't go unpunished which it was Mm. it's hard to argue with any of that it's got got to the point now where when max is defending a position particularly from lewis you just know there's going to be a flashpoint you just know something will happen they'll either come together or someone will be run off the road it's every single time he seems prepared to bend the rules almost or to breaking point 
at every opportunity. I just, well, I don't know. I think this was the sort of scruffiest, clumsiest weekend we've seen from him for a long time. There were flashes of brilliance, nine-tenths of that qualifying lap, brilliant. That lunge down into T1 to take the lead, brilliant. Um, but it's interesting, you got, it's interesting you got driver of the day, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, but that's Didn't see that coming. Total rubbish, though, isn't it? That's just about how active a fan base is. Yeah. I think that's what that is. And, you know, I've never voted for driver of the day. I don't know where you do it. I think it's probably a, a so group of people. No. But he's... I don't know. He's, he seems close to unraceable. His attitude seems to be that the other person should yield. He seems to think that um, penalties are applied willy-nilly when actually they're probably not not tough enough. Um, he just seems totally uncompromising. And the, the, do you know what? The frustration is, particularly if you're a Max fan, if he had taken the longer view at times this season, he'd probably have the championship all but wrapped up. Thinking back to Silverstone, if he just followed Lewis home and scored 18 points, he'd now only have to finish sixth next weekend or this coming weekend and the title would be his regardless. Yeah. And I know we could all be brilliant with a bit of hindsight, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier about thinking like a world champion. Yeah. He's not thinking like a world champion, whereas Lewis does. And when you think like a world champion, um, you know, and, and actually, you know, I think that was one of the things with, oh, sorry, I keep on talking about Sterling, but, you know, I think it's a good case in point. I don't think, and I quite admire the bloke for it, but I don't think he ever felt like, he ever thought like a world champion because, you know, he, like Max, is a racer. You know, he's an absolute racer through him. All he just wants to do is win the race. He just wants to get past the bloke in front. Um, and, you know, that, but that inability to think strategically is ultimately what denies you championships. And the reason that Lewis is so, well, to me, just on a different level to anybody out, out there at the moment is he can do both. He's He is the ultimate consummate race car driver but he also he picks his fight so well doesn't he um and you know he chooses which fights to have when he has those fights um he will almost always come out on top of them and when something happens he he appears able to be you know to exist in that kind of gray area between what is and isn't acceptable whereas max just sails straight past that and into the you know the you can't do that zone um and you know that's why lewis you know and then give that driver the fastest car which lewis absolutely had and you know you get what you get and it, it's you know max must have known that he could not win that race on speed. You know, he would have known from the opening, when, when, when Lewis was just sitting there behind him, Max would have known that he could not win that race on speed. So, you know, something had to happen. It wasn't going to happen in, um, you know, pit stops with overcuts and undercuts in the usual way. So, you know, what do you do? Well, you know, you get what you get, don't you? Indeed you do. He's a phenomenon, is Max. He's so fast, so talented, but I, I think his head's not quite there yet. And if he wins this championship, his approach will be reinforced, positively reinforced, and he might well keep on doing it. But if he loses it, perhaps he'll step back and go, what could I have done differently? Could I have made any decisions along the way that would have won me this championship? And I think he could have done. So, last thing, Abu Dhabi, what's going to happen? I have a very firm view on this. There are two very, very long straights there, plus the, the pit straight. Um, they're absolutely equal on points, but Max 
has the extra win. So if neither of them scores, Max takes the championship on count back. Um, I think I think the Mercedes is going to have a speed advantage around there. Perhaps not in qualifying, but certainly in the race. Um, I th- all things being equal, you know, I think Lewis wins, but you just can't say there isn't going to be a coming together. There, there's every possibility. I'm not saying Max is going to intentionally run him off the road, but if they, if they find themselves on the same piece of track, they've come together so many times, it seems likely it might happen again. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think you're right, but I think it's a big if. Um, my view, and I'm so looking forward to coming on this podcast this time next week and eating all the humble pie in the world. My view is that Lewis is just going to bugger off. I think it's going to be a massive anticlimax. I think Lewis is going to, I, th- I think Lewis is going to have such a speed. That, I mean, that Mercedes is so fast in a straight line. Um, it's outrageously fast in a straight line. And I don't think that even Max, it is most Machiavellian, is going to be able to stop it. Um, but who knows? We will see. I may really regret having just said that. But I, th- I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a straightforward race. Um, and I think that Lewis will bugger off and win an entirely deserved eighth championship yeah what a season it's been let's hope we just have a a memorable clean final race and whoever wins it wins it on merit and deserves it um but it's been so exciting to watch this year i've loved every moment of it um okay good well we'll know next week won't we but let's move this on then to poster cars and it's interesting that you spoke about cutting images of cars out of magazines and sticking them on your wall because that's precisely what i did not out of car magazine yeah but out of Max Power. I don't remember having any oh. posters. <laughs> I don't remember having any posters on my walls as a kid of cars, but I certainly, I made these, I actually made collages of, uh, you know, modified cars from the pages of Max Power and stuck them so all was, together. So was, was Max, Max Power your go-to magazine? Because back then, I mean, so, so what, what else was out there in the market then? Uh, well, Top Gear, Autocar. Um, yeah. But Performance I, car? Was I don't think so. I don't think so. But Max Power was the first car magazine that I actually read. You know, and I think it's quite an easy sort of introduction into car media, isn't it? As a, I'm talking as 14, 15 years old. And at that age, um, pun not intended, Max Power is probably more titillating than other car magazines, isn't it? Um, it was one of those, wasn't it? Yeah, very much. Did, so. did, did 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 they had scan? I can't I, because I was you know I'm 20 years old. You know, I, I never read it, but did they have um, scantily clad models drape, draping themselves over cars and all that sort of slightly weird stuff? Absolutely. But I had nothing to do with the reason you you read it. Obviously, <laughs> no, I was I read it for the articles. Um, <laughs> I read it for the articles. <laughs> <laughs> sure, uh, but yeah, so that was that was what I read, and actually it was probably it. 15 or 16 I got introduced to Top Gear or to Autocar and then all that Max Power stuff was very quickly behind me but yeah for a good couple of years my walls were covered in Max Power cars and yeah and those were my posters really you know I can't remember any single car among them but that's what I did Um, and so you were cutting cars out of car magazines presumably these were red wedgie Italian ones were they? Funny you should mention that. Um, yeah, of course they were. Um, <laughs> I was just, I, I, I was just like, um, you know, the Ferrari fanboy. Um, I've talked about this experience I had of being taken to the Ferrari importer in Egham when I was very, very young, um, sort of six or seven, 
and seeing a boxer there with six exhaust pipes and having to literally sit down and on the ground and, and just staring at this thing and that kind of that kind of left something in me and so yeah my bedroom walls and it wasn't all just ferraris but to me they were so beautiful and actually um back then funnily enough as a kid i was i will i was absolutely obsessed with the look of these cars as much as for what they did and their power and and reading about them and everything else and i just thought that that probably the boxer actually if you go and look at it in profile it is such it is such a perfect shape it is so brilliantly realized both in proportion and detail um and so i mean i used to have pictures i wouldn't just have a boxer up there i'd have every every kind of boxer there was from every kind of angle that there was because i was obsessed with them um and other strange italian stuff like do you remember the lancia beta monte carlo yeah yeah um and of course because i was a ferrari fan therefore i couldn't be a lamborghini fan yeah <laughs> um, so, so i was um i was and um you know so and i used to hate it when you know they published you know, and car magazine been doing this all the time. They publish a twin test between a Lamborghini Countach and a Boxer, or between, you know, a Raco or a, and, and a three away. And the Lamborghini would always win. <laughs> and it used to annoy me so much because clearly they were wrong. They didn't know what they were talking about. I had, I was in a much better position to judge these things than they were. Um, so yeah, it was two four sixes and it was boxers and then it was three oh eights. Um but it but it wasn't actually it wasn't just supercars because this was also the dawning of the year of what we now know as hot hatchbacks. Um and I was I was massively into those as well. So things like Renault five Gordinis. Um, with those amazing wheels. Um and you know, as a family we always had uh Alpha Suds. So I probably had a few of those on my walls as well. So yeah, it was, and also caterums, caterums. Yeah, oh, really? just and Lotus Sevens. Yeah, um, I loved them even then. Um, and there was, you know, I lived in Jersey at the time, uh, and I think there was like one on the island, but it had a particular route um, which went quite near our house. So I used to see it from time to time, and just being and just being gobsmacked by just the focus of the car just this single narrow-minded it's all about the drive. And, and i kind of got that even then even though at that stage i'd never even driven a car and i, I think it was a k-tram i don't think it was a lotus um and just thinking one day i'm gonna have one of those and actually of all the cars that i thought to myself one day i'm gonna have one of those it's actually the only one that i actually one day did go and have and still have so um so that was something but yeah all sorts um and british stuff as well yeah do you know what it's interesting hearing you talk about this because your enthusiasm for cars as a kid to me it appears to be have been guided and influenced because it's quite you sort of you seem to understand what was great about particular cars for instance the caterham or lotus 7 um your appreciation appeared to be heading in a, a sort of positive and explicable direction whereas mine Max power cars, you know, and I remember having the first car model that I bought was a Panos Esperante GTR1. I've still got it. Wow! Um, I had no clue what this thing was. No clue. But the model had green and purple flip paint with gold wheels. And I just thought, oh, I've got to have it. And I had no clue what it was. So I was very uninformed as a sort of adolescent car nut. 
Um, and I, I had sort of no direction, no guidance. Yeah, because that's interesting. That's the difference between you and me, isn't it? Because, you know, I came from this family of car maniacs, um, you know, where we would talk about, honestly, and, I'm, and I don't exaggerate at all, we as a family would spend more time talking about cars than everything else in life combined. <laughs> amazing we really would and you're completely opposite aren't you you're the complete opposite you had none of that influence in your life so i guess you had to you know just sort of go out there into the world of cars knowing nothing and eventually over time whittle it down into what you found out you later discovered you really liked but through a process almost of elimination of having to sort of embrace it all first yeah that's exactly right and i can give a very good example of that that the car company that I loved more than any other as a child, as a teenager, really, was TVR. Um, I loved that they were. I loved that they were British. I loved that yes. in that era, a lot of them had flip paint, which I just thought was the coolest thing at the time. Um, so I, you know, I, I loved the the Chimera Cerbera era. But then I was really, really enthusiastic about TVRs as the Tuscan and T three fifty era came along, and I loved their weird swoopy. UFO-ish interiors um, and I loved that as far as I could tell they monstered Porsche Boxsters in drag races um, they always you know the, the data in the back of car magazines told me they were faster than a lot of supercars I love that I love that they were built up in Blackpool you know um, so that's just a very good exa- example of the, the slightly misguided way that I loved cars as a kid well yeah, there's no right or wrong to this, is there? You love what you love at the time for whatever reasons you have. And that's, yeah. I think that's absolutely fine. Um, and, you know, you probably weren't that troubled by the fact that um, TVRs possibly weren't quite the most reliable thing on, on, on the road. You know, you just saw something which was beautiful. It was as fast as a supercar, but half the price. And it was British and it was innovative. And, you know, what's not to love? I completely get that. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, having driven a couple in adulthood, you know, they're, they're sort of amusing to drive and entertaining in their way. But I now know that there isn't really one thing that they do brilliantly. Um, and so I, I'm sort of, you know, I've, I'm not as concerned about them now as I was 20 odd years ago. Um, but uh, I, I was totally, totally obsessed with them as a kid. Yeah. Really, really loved it. So is, is that the sort of car, because as I, said, I didn't read it, is that the sort of, you know, if I think of Max Power and what the sort of typical cover car was, I'm kind of, I'm thinking about a sort of slightly steroidal, super-tuned Nissan 300ZX. Is that the sort of thing that they would, is that the sort of car that they would feature or have I got that wrong? No, that probably is right. I don't remember any 300ZXs, but certainly lots of GTRs, Skylines. Um, yeah. Lots of, this was in Pretza and Evo era. Um, but also lots of French hatchbacks. Uh, yeah, a lot of that stuff. Ja- Japanese heavy, um, with big body yeah. kits, big wings, but the sta- wheels. The standard cars and, and also super-tuned super cars as well. No standard cars at all. No, they were all modified, totally, front to back, all modified. And, th- you know, this is, just, this is what I come back to. It's, I now know, I now have no interest in those cars with big wheels and ride height like that you know just scraping along the ground because i actually care about the driving experience um and so it's just interesting that as i've sort of matured a little bit and realized and understood actually what it is that is important to me about cars the stuff that i was interested in years and years ago now really doesn't register 
Yeah, but you didn't know that at the time, did you? So it doesn't make the way you felt about those cars then in any way invalid. No, it was it just doesn't. you were, you know, it doesn't. and actually it was, you know, that was just that was just your heart, wasn't you? Because your head had no information in it, so that was just your gut reaction. Um, I think that's great. <laughs> so tell us about maybe choose one or two poster cars of yours that you later went on to drive. Did did it ever seem like a very significant, poignant moment? Were you ever completely blown away by one of these cars, or totally gutted by the driving experience? Oh, I think I can think of one car which I was blown away and gutted by at the same time, which was, you know, I, I mentioned briefly British cars, and I was talking about things like Aston Martin Vantages. Um, and, but actually, the Lotus Esprit. Uh, again, another another perfect wedge. The, I'm talking about the original Giugiaro car. Um, and again, for, actually, for many of the same reasons that... Um, you know, you love TVRs. I love the Esprit because it was as beautiful as a Ferrari. Um, when you read the twin test, they tended to beat Ferraris. Um, and I could, excuse, I, I, could, I could forgive them that because they were British. Um, and, and I was proud of them. You know, I didn't realise that, you know, that they, they, they felt a bit, you know, in 10 seconds flat. Um, and even if I did realise that, I don't think that would have troubled me very much. Um, and... Yeah, I, ju- I just I just loved the Esprit. And then, of course, the Bond movie came out and, you know, and that helped as well. And then when I was, I suppose, about uh, 20 or 21, so before I was a motoring journalist and while I was briefly earning some money in the city um, and back in the days when spoiled brats could do this sort of thing, um, I bought one. So I had an Esprit when I was, yeah, sort of 20, 21. Um, and I, had, I, and I won't go on about this road because I know I have talked about it on the podcast before, but um, I, broke, I bought it from a bloke called Barry um, in Fulham. Um, and it was both brilliant and appalling in a way no other car I've ever had was brilliant. I mean, the appalling bit was, surprise, surprise, it did fall to bits. And, you know, it's ultimately why I got rid of it because I just, it, it never completed a significant journey without going wrong. God. Literally. Um and, you know, frankly, its purpose in my life was I, I just thought that if I had this thing, there wouldn't be a girl in London who didn't suddenly find me absolutely captivating. <laughs> um, and what I also discovered is that the, the, the shine sort of somewhat rubbed off it when, you know, when you're stuck on the side of, you know, the A1 uh, with steam coming out the engine. But, and they didn't think that was quite as funny as I did. Um, and it, it, it didn't work in that regard at all. But... The handling of the car, oh my goodness, I had no idea. I had no idea that cars could be that, have that much grip, be that deft, have that kind of feel. Uh, it was, abs- when it was working and working right, it was absolutely magnificent. It was even better than I thought it would be. Um, and I'll never forget it. I will never, ever forget that car. Um, I mean, it ruined me. Um, and... I, I, I ended up hating it almost as much as I loved it. Um, and at the time, I bitterly regretted buying the thing. But actually now, looking back, I wouldn't have changed a thing. No, what an experience. Uh, what an experience uh, for a young idiot to have. And uh, yeah, it, I, I, I learned a lesson from it. It taught me all sorts of things, both good and bad. And um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's kind of, 
because I've never owned a Ferrari um, and I've never owned a Lamborghini uh, and I suspect I never will own either of those um, but I did own an Esprit and so that's the only kind of poster car which in terms of stuff that I've actually owned obviously not driven because I've been lucky enough to drive all sorts of stuff um, yeah that's probably the only one that sort of leapt to reality so it sounds like you went from poster car to owning one of these things in a, in a, I don't know, a decade or so no less yeah well yeah I mean well so The Spy Who Loved Me came out in 1977 uh, yeah maybe a decade actually yeah I probably had this thing in about 87 yeah huh. that's remarkable so I said I'd mention computer games and of course the big one for me was Gran Turismo I'd loved all of them growing up um, and it's why the Mitsubishi GTO was the hero car and I think I think it was on the first game the 3000 GT as we'd know it and even though that what car gets utterly car. panned <laughs> utterly utterly rubbish car <laughs> but I will always have a sort you know at least a small soft spot for that thing because it was the the Gran Turismo car um, and then later on it was the the Suzuki Escudo Pikes Peak car that you only got if you'd been playing the game for hours and hours and hours and it had a thousand horsepower and it would monster every single other car on there but it was impossible to drive so you'd just be off at every corner get past everyone on the straight off at the next never corner never even heard of it was this, was this a real car? I yeah mean, well, it, was, clearly it wasn't a real car but it was you know it, it was based on something that, it, that, that existed that's right it was yeah yeah and it was just a brilliant brilliant thing um, and again you know that, that for me is a form of poster car if I ever saw one I'd, I'm sure I'd now lose my mind um, there we go. F one and poster cars. Um, so, 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 just on post on, on your computer on your computer cars. Do you do, do you still do you still have Grand Turismo? Do you still no. keep up to date with it? And no, not at all. No, and it's. I mean, that whole scene has come on so far, hasn't it? With um, sim racing, uh, everyone. Lots of people have these big rigs at home, um, and it's not even Grand Turismo anymore, is it? It's sort of dedicated, more professional games. I racing, isn't it? That that these I, people I play. Don't know. I just, I yeah, I'm, I'm totally out of sync with it all now. I, I, I don't have any setup here. I don't even have a PlayStation. Um, but my mate has got a sim, and he's just set it up in, in his flat. And so hopefully at some point we'll get back on it, and maybe, maybe I'll be talking about sim racing next year. Excellent. Look forward to it. Maybe I'll do though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's leave that one there. Um, thank you, as ever, to JBR Capital. Uh, sponsors of the Intercooler podcast. If you're looking to fund your next classic sports car, supercar, hypercar, just go and check them out, um, see what they can do for you at JBR Capital on social media, jbrcapital.com online. Um, go and get a quote, you might be surprised. Uh, yeah, that just leaves me to say thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate and review the podcast, that really does help. Download the Intercooler app as well. If you haven't done it already, I don't know why you haven't done it already. We've told you so many times. Go and download the Intercooler app, start your one-month free trial, and you can see what it's all, all about. We think it's good. We've put a lot of work into it. We've got some great writers. Um, so it's got to be worth checking out, hasn't it, starting a free trial. Um, and as ever, we'll be back to talk to you all again next week. All the best.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.